0: Uh,
1: and preferably, yeah, don't sit on a squeaky
2: chair from bitter experience. Well Anyway, it, my friend, look, we've been yakking for a quarter of an hour nearly already. We haven't even started. We haven't even started, mate, no. But this this reminds me of days gone by with... You were uh, sitting on that veranda, having a look out across, <laughs> across these ve- the, 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 uh, the belt there, and uh, with the colonel and Neil.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I'm christening this.
2: Agent, yes. There we go. There we go. That makes me feel better. This, I'm calling this um, uh, "Perspective from the Patio." So, <laughs> <laughs> an homage. It's an homage. Okay, right. So I had better introduce you, Henry, because, uh, as you say, we've witted on for a little while, but this is what I wanted. I wanted I wanted the conversation so great. So welcome to episode 11, Henry, of God's Own Scale. I am Sean Clark, your host for the day.
1: Fantastic. <laughs> Just- and ladies and gentlemen, I have finally got the mystery man to reveal his identity you know i'm really chuffed if i make no other contribution to this man's show there we go Uh, yeah that's a lovely fellow he's a lovely fellow with a lovely name and i recall you first approached me was it um partisan or something or the other Partisan? and one quite quite some time ago now last year the year before anyway one of the ones that was actually able to go ahead and wasn't lockdown
2: yes
1: so uh yeah that was i was really i was really flattered actually that i'm always flattered when another podcaster says oh would you come on my show it's like
2: who me sure it's rubbish for an hour (laughs) well no henry you um before we kick off it's it's important for me to say that um it's a privilege for me to have you on the show I first read an article by you, and I did this to Rich Clark actually. uh, But the article by him only dates back to the mid 90s, mid early 90s, whereas yours dates back some time before that. And it won't be a six, you're going to say. Well, I, I couldn't name the year, I knew it was 80s, but and it won't come as a surprise when I mention something called the Faltenian Succession, Faltenian Succession. That's right, it was an article called Fictitious Wars, yes. it was in
1: Miniature War Games, when it was still under the ownership of Duncan McFarlane, and I think it was like issue 42 or 43, something like that, uh, mid-1986, um yeah and i it, there's a lot that that article triggered uh, triggered a lot of stuff i mean first of all i can remember sitting down and typing it Right back in those days, pre-internet days, I had. um I was pretty advanced. I had one of those electric typewriters where it would kind of remember like half a dozen words, so you type away, and then it would suddenly go right and type out those half dozen words. But so you had a limited correction facility, so you could you, you had this little sort of digital readout at the top of the typewriter. Goodness me, it was those like the days. days they were considered moderate at the time but anyway I typed out that article which I'd actually started thinking about and writing during my year abroad as a student when I was in Augsburg in Germany so that was 1981-82 right Falklands War and all that and I'd started thinking about the article back then and at the time I think at that point in 1986 I was to put it euphemistically between jobs or between careers. And I was thinking, God, I've got to do something to earn a few quid. Right. And so I heard, Oh, they actually pay for articles. Do they in miniature war games? So I, typed this thing up and sent it in and i also did a couple of kind of watercolor illustrations that a lot of people remembered one of gefreiter schultz saving the colors of his regiment the third musketeers leaping across the the stream the stream that was called the klein i seem to uh, which is if you translate that pardon my french it means little piss right <laughs> The client. There was an awful lot of rude German words that made it into that article that no one noticed. Duncan didn't notice. And he actually sent me a letter uh, when he returned my illustrations and said, Oh Henry, love you to do another article for us. Would you please would you please be more circumspect with your choice of fruity language next time though? That's um well, because the, the, uh, the other uh, illustration was the Feel Ficken Hussars charging into the gun positions. And, well, uh, this is a, a show that might be listened to by young people. So I won't translate Feel Ficken, but I think anyone with a little imagination can probably work out what it means. Anyone with a yes. d- hint of German. So uh, that was kind of... Um, interesting because i'm surprised he actually published it but he did in full in full including i did these little square hand-drawn maps i think it was kind of the the the, the assault on the town of langard i think that was the the thing and looking back now my goodness me we didn't have the benefit of the internet we didn't have the benefit of instant cameras or anything like that so i i did these maps by hand, having played through this solo game of this disastrous attempt by Prumplung to attack this um a, 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 attack of this uh, fortress held by Fultonland, um, and it was a right laugh. I, because you know, it's back then. Everyone now, you know, with Infamy, Infamy of Chain of Command, all these things, thinks, oh yes, you know, card driven, all the rest of it. And I relied on ideas from Don Featherstone back then, in his solo wargaming book, and I'd made all my own cards on little index cards, you know, so uh, um, courier gets lost on the way to deliver orders, uh, horse shot from under him, he has to continue on foot, uh, gets lost in the fog, all these kind of things to add what rich and nick would now proudly say friction to the game and oh my god there was so much friction in that game i look back on it now and think that was almost ahead of its time It was, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a bit of fun really and i the thing was back then i was still living at. um when i had to go back and live because I was unemployed live with my mum at uh, our old family home and I didn't have a a, a room for a war games table in my bedroom at the time so I cleared out one of the sheds in the garden and set up this I think the table was only like five feet square something like that and played out this thing solo and so I look back with a lot of affection on that and it was one of those things where oh my god i've been published i've been published and i have to say they did a great job actually reproducing the the images the the illustrations i had done this is back in the day when you had proper repro houses who took pride in the quality of the scans they did and you know they were checked and double checked and the quality of duncan's photography back in those days was absolutely beautiful and I, this thing was published, Fictitious Wars, and it was it was quite a long piece, wasn't it? Eight or ten pages, I seem to remember. Mm-hmm. And I thought nothing of it. Because, you know, I thought, oh, well, that was nice, and that's an end to it. Because, of course, back then, it wasn't like nowadays. You've got Twitter. You get instant feedback, don't you? You, you Something's published. You know, my, like one of my articles in Wargame Soldiers and Strategy or whatever. Instantly people, oh, I've just got my copy, and oh, I really loved your article in that. Back then, it was like... It was an echo chamber. It was like you send something off silence unless someone happens to write in a letter of complaint to the editor. That article was absolutely disgraceful, full of German expletives, which could have happened, but didn't. So it, I was kind of astonished when, uh, oh, my goodness me. Let's fast forward to 2005, thereabouts, mid 2005, where I got uh, an email from uh, a guy who'd been following my what was we didn't call them blogs back then, but my website, my battle games website. This guy Steve Gill, uh, who said, "Oh uh, Henry, um, we're setting up this this group with this with this, these people called Yahoo, and we're calling it Old School War Gaming." And there's there's a bunch of us there who remember that article you wrote. Would you be interested in coming along and chatting with us? And I was like, "Blimey." First of all, someone read it. <laughs> That's the first thing. Secondly, they remembered it. And thirdly, what, there's more than one person who remembers it. So I was astonished. And, I, and I, of course, I went along to the what was then the nascent old school wargaming Yahoo group um, run by a guy called Patrick Lewis on, on Yahoo, which at the time only had a few dozen members, you know, less than 100 for sure. And so that was kind of the beginning of something and, and the whole growth of the uh, of the old school wargaming movement. You know, that group went f- very swiftly from, you know, under a hundred to several hundred people to eventually a couple of thousand or something. Um, and I was kind of one of the core members, as it turned out. And it was that, of course, that then led to various associations being made and me deciding to launch my Battle Games magazine. Uh, so, yeah, that that was... That, I owe a lot to that article. But, you know, as as with all these things, Sean, so much of it is serendipity. Yes. You know, someone somewhere remembers something that you did and you, suddenly you're put picked out and pushed to the front, as it were. So it wasn't like I I said, oh, I want to lead this movement. It was nothing like that at all. It was just... Sheer
2: chance. So I'm just very grateful that that it turned out that way. I think looking back, I'd probably first bought war games magazines in the early 80s. I would say, which would have been when did War Games Illustrated launch? About 80. Mm, no. Well,
1: yeah, because miniature war games launched. Uh, it would have been about uh, 1982, so 83, yes. something yeah. like that. Well, we could work it out, couldn't? Because I was. Uh, mid late uh, 86, that was published, and that was issue, as I say, issue 42, 42. something like that. Yeah. So, kind of uh, 1982, 83, something like that.
2: But, but I was one of these people who bought everything that I could find, um, whether it was War Games Illustrated, Practical War Gamer, of course, with the dear old Stuart um, Asquith, um, and and Miniature War Games. And out of those hundreds and hundreds of issues of war games magazines, there's probably half a dozen articles that will stay with you. And mm-hmm. the Fultonian Succession one was most definitely it. And I, I had to smile then. We can see each other on, on this screen, but listeners won't know that I was smiling with that, that warm glow of nostalgia as you're talking <laughs> to me about yeah. it. And one of the images I've got is that guy jumping over the stream with the, the flag that sticks with me. And, you know, that's, Crikey, 34 years ago, yeah, you know, that, that makes us all feel old, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think, but yeah. it, it absolutely sticks with me, and I know that um, uh, through Battle Games subsequently that came on, there was very much, I think it was the spirit of wargaming, wasn't it?
1: That's right. The, the
2: tagline, which very much captured what, uh, what it was about, and, you know, we we're so sorry to see probably not as sorry as you but you know <laughs> the, the customers uh, were certainly very sorry to see uh, battle games then because i thought it was that breath of fresh air that wargaming needed at that point oh, in thanks. time
1: thanks i mean for me i mean as I, again i think serendipity i that article that i wrote uh sums up a lot for me as well because i wrote that article because i was already back then thinking oh what's happened to charles grant you know, who had been my idol, as it were, you know, my, my thinking mentor, you know, the guy who said, you know what, it's absolutely okay to make stuff up. You know, we're reproducing. He was mad about, obviously, Frederick the Great, Seven Years' War, the War of the Austrian Succession. Uh, But I've, I've decided I don't want my armies to, they, they look a lot like the Prussian and Austrian or, or Prussian and French armies. But i you know, for my own reasons and my relationship with my son, who also named Charles, as we know, uh, we decided to have these imaginary nations. Uh, and so it's the uh, Vereinigte and the Grand Duchy of Lorraine. And those are the c- combatants in my battles. Um Which is fascinating. And a lot of people thought, yeah, but Charles Grant is a highly intelligent bloke, you know, and uh, why would he do such a thing? But also he was a very, very keen Ancients Wargamer. And we mustn't forget, of course, that Ancients Wargaming had already for a long time said we're perfectly happy to use fictitious countries because of Tony Barth's Hyboria campaign. Right. All this is stuff I'm writing about in my book that will eventually get published Honest, Uh, But this is one of the things that was fascinating me. All these highly intelligent blokes who would probably get quite prickly if a member of the public said to them, oh, it's just playing with toy soldiers. You know, they went to great lengths writing lots of books, didn't they? That generation to point out it is not just playing with toy soldiers, (laughs) but at the same time, perfectly happy to make stuff up. Yes. And say, oh, yes, no, this is, isn't ancient Greek, it's Azaklon, or whatever it happens to be. This isn't Prussia, this is Die Vereinigte and so on. And I just love that, uh, that tradition, because also, one of the things that I think war gamers, certainly in the early days, and still to a certain extent, were worried about, is that that, that accusation that somehow they were warmongers, okay, yeah. So by introducing this kind of imaginary aspect, it made it somehow safer. You know, also, we're not Nazi Germans and Americans or whatever. We're these other countries. Uh, Because also, quite interestingly, um, uh, Charles Grant wrote a little book called Battle Practical Wargaming. Some people might remember it. It's got a little yellow cover. And because of who I am, I can wave this at you, Sean. You've probably seen that. (laughs) That's my yes. old school Wargaming bookshelf I just reached over to, folks. And here is this wonderful thing. And I'm lucky it's a signed copy as well. Um, One pound twenty-five back in the day. Bless it. And there's this whole little book full of rules that seem to be for world war Two, but at no point does he actually say it's world war Two. he never actually says oh yes you know this is german army and this is the american army from 1944 whatever it is and it's left kind of vague we can you know guess yeah what it is world war Two, probably ish um But again, it's left kind of vague. So again, you get this safety, this distance created between real war, which is nasty and horrible when people sadly die. And hey, we're just, you know, this is a game. Um, So that tradition kind of excited me. And I think this was the other thing. When I wrote that article, the fictitious wars article, the fact is no one had seen an article like that for quite a long time you know and then when battle you know the decision to start battle games which happened late 2005 the first issue came out march 2006 it was really you know i was one of those people practical wargamer had disappeared some time previously and i was one of those people thought surely something that, that can't just lie dormant someone's going to pick that up it was such a lovely magazine um and like all these things actually you know your mind plays the nostalgia trick and actually i've got pretty much the entire collection of practical wargamer i think and you go back and it's not quite as you might remember it actually um because stewart was quite an eclectic um editor of the magazine so there was some stuff in there that's like oh that's not necessarily what you would expect But we all remember the articles we did love. We all remember the tabletop teasers from Charles Grant. We all remember, you know, those battles for war gamers and, you know, lots of other stuff. All those beautiful illustrations by Rick Scollins, sadly departed. Um, And there's enough in there as a body of work for you to think, God, that that was a marvellous thing. And it was the right thing for me at that time. And I associated myself with that kind of war game, that kind of gentlemanly conduct, that kind of, you know, the, the, the game's the thing. Fat, chaps. you know, don't have arguments over this kind of thing. Um, and so it, it lay dormant for such a long time. And I realized, well, if, I, if someone doesn't do something about this, it's never going to come back. And so I just felt, well, it might as well be me. And what better way to start getting something of that ilk back again than to actually approach Stuart Asquith and Charles Grant as the pretty much the first two people I contacted. Um, who else did I? Oh, Mike Siggins. Mike Siggins, of course, had that column, Wargamer's News, um, uh, notebook, notebook, Wargamer's Notebook, notebook. Yeah. that had run for ages in Wargames Illustrated. Um, and uh, Mike was ripe for the picking because I pointed out to him, yeah, and I'll actually pay you, Mike. (laughs) Was that a novel idea? (laughs) Well, let's just say, um, Duncan's a lovely bloke, but shall we say his administration was a little slipshod at times, and there were a number of regular... Contributors to his magazine who, shall we say, were left out of pocket for quite some time. So, when I said to Mike, Yeah, and I'll pay you this and I'll pay you, you know, as soon as the article's published, like, Yeah, okay. (laughs) So, I had three well known names from the get go when I started Battle Games. But also, there was this thing, Sean, that I I didn't want it just to be nostalgia. I mean, this is obviously where the focus of this podcast comes in because. Um, As a gamer, yes, I have got a ridiculously huge collection of Spencer Smith miniatures because I'm a nostalgia nut and there's just something about those 30 mil plastics that I love. You know, I I imprinted on them when I was a lad. But also, uh, one of the early major purchases I made back in the, when would it have been, the 1980s, Was I took a trip to Heroics and Ross when they were down in Wiltshire um, back in the day. And I came away with a very large pile of uh, one three hundredth Seven Years War miniatures. And, in fact, even earlier than that, and I remember this only recently because I stumbled across a box in my piles of stuff here, which is like, what the heck is this? And I must have obviously sent off a couple of sample packs of Napoleonics from them sometime before that. Now, back then, I must have seen them advertising in military modelling, maybe. Yes. uh, Something of that kind, because, of course, military modelling or Battle for War Games right because which had a a, a a time as a standalone magazine but then got reabsorbed back into military modeling and and they were advertising you know heroics and ross bless the hearts, they've been around for a long time yes. i mean back to what the 1970s probably must be. must be a long time um so that's the thing with me it's like yes i i like you know big 30-millimeter miniatures, big battalions of those. But I was already, and, and the question is why, I must have seen an article, again, it must have been a Battle for War Wargamers, something like that, uh, where someone was talking about, do you, I don't know if you remember, miniature figurines did 5-millimeter blocks.
2: I'll, I've heard of them, Henry. <laughs> right. I, I can't ever recall seeing them. I,
1: I don't think I ever saw them in the flesh, but I certainly remember someone did an article somewhere featuring these five millimeter blocks. I think they were using them to refight Waterloo on a map, something of that kind. And of course that immediately said to me, Oh, that's interesting. Um, that I could already see this notion that by using small blocks representing big battalions and so on. You get that kind of bird's eye view of a battle. Look that uh, this is something I've talked about in my podcast with, um, Sydney Roundwood and Mark Backhouse, who are obviously two meal specialists. Yes. And we've discussed this thing of that. You know what? As we were growing up, we would see in lavish coffee table books or going to museums, battle paintings. And one of the things that's really hard to reproduce with large-scale miniatures, unless you happen to be the owner of the War Games Holiday (laughs) Center, right, is that, oh, my God, look at all those men and this huge battle stretching into the distance with with the miniatures following the contours of the land in the same way as, you know, they would in real life. Um, I mean, that's another discussion, isn't it? You know, billiard table flat war games. What can we do about it? Yes. But um, that so I was already I, I was never I never have been purely a, you know, large figure man. Yes. At the moment, I'm painting up imagination. Bizarre their 28 mil gripping beast. But that just happens to suit the project because we're doing Warhammer ancient battles. But at the same time, I'm doing Uh, you've probably seen on Twitter, I've I've got a shitload. Peter's going to be so delighted when he actually sees me starting to put paint on these things because I've had them a while. Uh, (laughs) Shed loads of Romans and barbarians at that scale. They can be Gauls. They can be Britons. They can be whatever I want them to be um, for playing commands and colors ancients with my godson and playing it on hex on terrain, you know, and it's a matter, f- in a sense, of if you've got an idea in your head, right, you're just choosing the right tool for the job. Yeah. Okay. I've seen Commands and Colors at a couple of Paths and Shows, actually, you might have seen it, being played with even 28 mil miniatures on really big hexes. And that just doesn't do it for me. I think one of the things about if you're, going to, if you're going to translate a board game into a miniatures game, I want to, if you like, enhance the big battle look of that game. You know, instead of using wooden blocks, you know, if I'm not going to use a, four wooden blocks in a hex, I don't want to use just four miniatures. Yes. Right? So my my uh, Roman Heavy Infantry, uh, oh gosh, how many in a unit? Uh, quite a lot. I think it's 96 figures in a unit. Wow. So okay. four, four 20 by 40 MDF bases, each of them with oh, eight, 12, uh, 24 miniatures on, right? Yeah. It's going to look stonking. Absolutely. But we're kind of getting a let me circle back round a bit. So the whole thing was with battle games, right? Yep was i wanted to show yes and that first cover issue one you know hold on to your bounce sticks or whatever it was yeah. you know big battalions are back <laughs> that was kind of a statement which some people never forgave me for because they branded me, oh he's big battalions old school uh you know spencer smith rubbish miniatures uh not my thing at all right <clears throat> Faithful readers realised over time I brought in such a variety of different stuff. I was the first magazine to have six mil miniatures on the front cover.
2: They were pairs, right? weren't they? they uh, were yeah, hairs?
1: Air Broad Yeah. Uh, I can't remember, Clisovitz or whatever the battle was. Absolutely. Mm. And because, and also, uh, you might remember, I had people like Bob Barnetson from Canada. Yeah. He yeah. did a, one of his first articles, How to Paint the Little Buggers or whatever it was yes. called, right? Yeah. And he had a really interesting method because he used uh, future floor polish with ink or something in it as his undercoat. You know, he didn't bother with a white or black undercoat. He just kind of went for it. And I I remember talking to Pete Berry about this. And he said, oh, Bob, yeah, he's mad. (laughs) But... he. Bob was a great source over the over the few years of the magazine's existence of some really great articles featuring small-scale stuff. Agreed. We had, uh, I think it was Dave Robot and painting 10 mil paratroopers uh, and so on and so forth because I want, you know, I'm a very broad church guy. I'm very Catholic in my tastes. And as I was saying there, I look at scale, miniature scale, as you know, choosing the right tool for the job. If you're a carpenter, you've got a great big range of chisels from enormous blooming great things if you're going to be carving a you know, a church organ or something, down to little, little tiny ones if you're doing marquetry and that kind of thing. And, and my feeling has always been that the choice of scale you make for a particular game, even a particular rule set, you know, because there are people like me who've got the same period... In different scales, but I will use them for different rule sets. I'll use them for different scales of encounter. You know, if if I want to do a really big battle like Salamanca, <coughs> let's not mention that. But if I'm going to do a really big battle, sick, we'll come back to it. All right, sure. We will, yes, yes. I was trying to get in there. We there will you. mention it. <laughs> um, but for a big battle like that, right, one of the big, biggest battle in the Peninsular War... 6 mil is an obvious choice if you want to be able to fit it into, you know, my loft buffer here, right? But do, moving upscale at all, either you've got to have units with a lot fewer miniatures in them, which again kind of detracts from the look that I'm trying to achieve, uh, or you're going to need a lot more space, uh, or you're going to have to start making compromises by uh, the term is bathtubbing so you know oh well yeah I know that brigade should be four regiments but we're just going to use one to represent the whole brigade which to me is like no I don't want to do that I to me it's important to be able to see the component units in that brigade you know at, at that level for a big battle that's, that's probably enough below that you want to see the component companies in a battalion you know or whatever yes, it happens to be So for me, uh, 6mm is a perfect, or even 2mm, I might come to that, I haven't tried it yet, but it might be just the perfectly logical choice for that particular thing that you want to represent. So to my mind, you know, because I think before the show we were chatting on Twitter and you're saying, you know, we should perhaps talk about scale prejudice and that kind of stuff. Well, to my mind, scale prejudice is, pardon me, is just bloody stupid. You know, why would you have a prejudice again? You may have your own preferences, right? Mm. You may feel like, well, I, for example, someone who really enjoys really intricate painting of miniatures and maybe even does military modeling, that kind of stuff as well, makes 54 mil stuff. Sure, the attraction of 28 mil or even 40, 42 mil, you know, it's undeniable if you want to lavish care and attention on an individual figure absolutely you know uh there are some mad people like Jim Imbertson who keeps popping up on Twitter who paints 28 millimeter miniatures en masse to that standard <laughs> yeah. which is like yeah Jim give us a break mate give us a break <laughs> <Yeah>. okay <laughs> I admire him but you know that's his thing that's his shtick and good luck to him bless his heart yeah I lavish that amount of attention on 28 mil miniatures is if I'm doing skirmish gaming. Um, there's a company called Black Scorpion Miniatures who do the most amazing Wild West stuff and pirate stuff and that kind of thing. And those are just exquisite miniatures that you kind of feel like, yeah, okay, I'm going I'm to lavish them with some care and attention to produce individually beautiful miniatures because that's how they're used in the game as well, as individuals. Uh, my Spencer Smith, 30 mil, production line. I mean, it's part of the mercy with the Spencer Smiths is they've got no detail on them. <laughs> There's no buttons. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally, uh, maybe when Holger Erickson first sculpted them, there were, but they were back in those days, 1960s, more likely that the detail was engraved into the figure. Right. Whereas now, of course, modern miniatures, it's all kind of raised up. So, oh, yes, you can just dry brush across the buttons and there they are. All yeah. oh, that lace dry brush across it. There you go. Whereas back in the 50s and 60s, like the tradition of London kind of vibe. That was all kind of minutely engraved with jeweler's tools, right? So it was there, but you needed to also be an incredible painter to be able to pick out that detail. Yes. So I'm a Spencer Smith production line, and somewhere on the blog, somewhere I I think I posted some pictures of how I do that, um, and people can see that. Yeah, you know, you if you're painting forty-eight man battalions, you don't mess about with eyelashes,
2: right? Yeah. No, surely not.
1: And of course, that you know, when it comes to six mil painting, which a lot of people, oh, I can't, oh, I can't paint six mil, I can't see the little buggers, can't see. Well, you're the same man who's put in, you know, uh, buttons and lace on twenty eight mil miniatures, and not complaining. Yes, I look at what you're doing, think it. Blumneck, right? That would take me a month of Sundays. And you're saying you can't see the six... Well, that's rubbish. Yes. And it's like all things. It's just you adapt your technique to suit the miniatures. And you, again, you're thinking not in terms of... Yeah, well, if you want to. And there are a few crazy, crazy people who do, of course. On a six mil miniature, you know, you might have the Duke of Marlborough. Yes, you could lavish incredible... Shade, ooh, th- three stage highlighting from Kevin Dalimore's book, you know, and all the rest of it. You put that on the table at normal gaming distance, mate. You won't be able to tell the difference between that and the one I just went, dub, 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 dub.
2: yes, right. I don't know if you, um, are you aware of Pear's community project where he's uh, building yeah. two fictional nations? Funnily enough, yeah,
1: so. yeah, he, he, in fact, he did approach me. Uh, And I was just about to start my radiotherapy stuff. And I said, oh, good on you, mate. But I didn't commit to, you know, doing anything because I don't want to let you down. You know, I'd love to think, oh, yes, I could sit back and paint half a dozen regiments for you. But um, I would be. and, And it turns out I was right not to commit to doing that. But. What a lovely idea. I mean, yes. Pierce such a super bloke. Yeah.
2: Lovely.
1: And um, the thought, you know, the fact that he's doing this out of the goodness of his heart for charity, supported by Pete
2: Berry, of Yeah.
1: is lovely. And I know because he's shown me on Twitter, he's actually painted a little unit of elite horse grenadiers or something, I think they are, in my name, bless his yes. heart. Yeah. And I was really touched by that.
2: Oh, it was lovely, wasn't it? Lovely.
1: Really choked up by that.
2: But that was on that point of detail, um, Mark Backhouse, who you've mentioned, and hopefully I'm chatting to you later in the week, um, he was given one of the command stands to do. In fact, the, the CNC, the general for the dense the sort of uh, vaguely Swedish right. uh, side. And he's done an absolutely immaculate job. And uh, he put a picture up on Twitter and I replied saying, well, I'm giving up. I'm giving up. That's ridiculous what you've done with that. And uh, I I think he thought I was serious. So that's a sort of qualifying statement just to say that really is incredible work there. But you're absolutely right. And I'm I'm always at pains to stress with this podcast. The name of the podcast is god 's own scale it 's just something Peter said yeah many years yeah, ago yeah, yeah. it 's tongue in cheek uh, i'm I, I game in all scales i 'm not a solely six mil gamer but i 'm here to try and promote six mil yeah. um, for that reason that we talked about that bit of snobberish mm. behavior that Peter will often talk about mm. uh, whether on a, uh, one of his blog posts or uh, on the Bacchus website, where he'll say, a customer came up to the stand at a show. God, that seems like years ago, doesn't it, that we've yeah, all, yeah. any of us have <laughs> been to
0: a bloody show. Yeah, but, what
2: are they, Sorry? Yeah, exactly, it's just bizarre, isn't it? But um, th- that that person who goes up to his stand, looks at the, those beautiful figures he has in that case there, the painted examples, yeah, yeah. and just walks away and says, oh, it's ridiculous, this is, or I can't paint anything so small and in response to that i wrote i've got a very underused blog i wrote a, a blog piece saying i couldn't possibly paint anything so big because but, uh, yeah. you know, it's that counter argument to say well why would you put buttons on a bloody 28 mil figure it, you, even on a 28 mil figure in the middle of a war games table you can't yeah. see that button you can't see that lapel uh edging you know, yeah. the Perry, Perry twins, um, God bless them, at the partisan shows put on these magnificent spectacles and they actually play the game, don't they? They just yeah. look like they're having so much fun. And yeah, each yeah. one of those units is just beautifully painted. Yeah. But if it's in the middle of that 12 foot by six table, well, yeah. my daughter could have painted that. Who's dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not until you get it right under your nose that you can see yeah. that detail. Um, so you're right, absolutely. It's about getting the right tools for the right job, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I I, I was thinking um, also your comment earlier about Mark Backhouse there, uh, and and I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, for him six mil, that's upscaling, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it from two mil. You know, he, he makes his own two mil miniatures. You know, our green stuff on bases and stuff like that. It's like, how the hell is he doing? To... So <laughs> six
2: it. mil for him is a giant. Right, oh, yeah, yeah, it Hinges must seem like a 12 foot canvas that he's got suddenly. One, one of the things
1: that's really interesting about um, I mean, there's obviously scale creeping involved back in the day when um, Battle for War Games it was 25 mil was the scale, wasn't it? With uh, miniature figurines and hinchlift, kind of the leading names, Dixon miniatures, and others too. But uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the War Games Holiday Center, Sean, have you? No, right. I haven't. Right. You get the opportunity. You need to go, mate. Uh, The current one run by Mark Freeth. There's another one opening somewhere else I've forgotten. Um, But Mark Freeth has got a huge chunk of Peter Gilder's original collection, right? And one of the things is I think back to all those early kind of miniature war games and War Games Illustrated magazines where Duncan McFarlane constantly had his camera at the War Games Holiday Centre as it then was in Scarborough, you know, where Peter Gilder was. Uh, Then, sadly, later Peter Gilder died and Mark and some other people bought up because his collection was vast of all these beautiful miniatures. The thing is, if you go back to those magazines and have another look, the level of detail that people paint... First of all, the, the miniatures themselves, again, weren't actually as detailed as you might remember them to be. Secondly, they... Well into the 1980s, was still casting those miniatures, and of course, you can still buy them uh, through Heinz Miniatures. I think here the Hinchliffe range. Those miniatures that Peter Guild sculpted—they're very, you know, what catches your eye about them is they're very active. They're very much in movement. You know, the cavalry—they really are charging cavalry. You know, I can remember a couple of glorious front covers on miniature war games back in the day where it was like the carabiniers coming over the crest to attack the British squares or whatever. And they're just magnificent. But actually, the level of detail with which they were painted is not the same as people now paint miniatures. The, you know, they probably do all right. They get a mid-range placing and a painting competition right. But the first thing is that they were painted in a glossier style with a gloss varnish. That's something that's changed. Uh, A lot of the basing was nowhere near as sophisticated as it is these days. Uh, But they still looked hugely impressive en masse. And if you go to the Wargames Holiday Centre and online on my Flickr page, I think I've got hundreds and hundreds of images from the Wargames Holiday Centre that people can go and have a look at. You'll see these massive sweeping battle scenes on these tables that are like 24 feet by 6 feet or whatever, right? They look amazing en masse. Yes. Okay? whereas if you zoom in for individual detail on any of those figures it's actually like oh right i thought they would actually be almost like better painted better than this no. but that's the wrong word to use isn't it painted better because they were painted to achieve a particular purpose and they achieved that purpose perfectly in the same way as if you're painting a load of as I'm going to be doing six mil miniatures to look great en masse, then in a sense, other than the kind of command groups, you don't necessarily want any individual figure to stand out. You actually want them to look as if they are a mass of men on a battlefield doing their job. And I think this is one of those other things, isn't it? We have this idea of perfection because most of us in the hobby have to admit to a certain degree, you know, greater or lesser degree of, you know, being on the spectrum of obsessive. Right. And so it's our own obsession with getting the painting. Absolutely. Perfect, 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 you know, and Oh, I've made a splodge. They go back over. Right. That's our own obsession. Whereas if you, if you imagine real soldiers on a real battlefield, um, they're not necessarily in parade uniform, right? They're not spick and span. They haven't just all come back from the dry cleaners, <laughs> right? <laughs> the guys on the field at Waterloo, they would have certainly, you know, because they. this is one of the interesting things historically, and one of the, the things I've always been fascinated about over you know, the 18th century and 19th century. Soldiers did want to look their best for going into battle. So, yes, they would give themselves a bit of a brush down and tie themselves up, and if they've got a fresh shirt, they'll put that on. But like the build-up to Waterloo, it's been pouring with rain, they've been trudging through mud, they're not going to look picture-perfect on the morning of Waterloo. Mm. So it actually is quite anachron- anachronistic to see a, a display of miniatures representing the Battle of Waterloo, where they all look like they've just come back from the dry cleaners, or yeah. they've just been issued with brand-new uniforms. For ground best. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. And this is where... Uh, our <laughs> we, we are often obsessed to paint our miniatures in a and I'm showing inverted commas with my fingers here, folks. Uh, obsessed uh, with being historically accurate, yeah. Uh, and having all our figures wearing the correct uniforms. And we know some people, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I've got a completely different set of figures. For my eighteen oh seven French from my eighteen oh eight French, because there was a slight change in uniform regulations, and I do—I've met people who've duplicated the Grande Armée several times to represent, so it represents them. It's like really, really, and that's also assuming that you know every unit got issued with its new uniforms at the same time. You know, they didn't have Amazon deliveries in those days. So uh, and and yet the real historically accurate thing to do, and this is where I do admire someone like Jim Ibbotson is he paints his figures exquisitely and then muddies them up, dirties them up. So when you look at a Jim Ibbotson, you know, group of figures, you can see they've got muddy boots. They've got, you know, dirt and filth running up their legs and stuff. Yeah, they've been, been bashed and banged about, you know. Now, that I, I still think that way lies madness. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do see... Now, that is someone who understands what historical reality actually is. Uh, historical reality is not perfection. No. And then there's this other thing, isn't it, that you know, and this is why, you know, one of the strong reasons why do six mil or 10 or two or whatever, the micro is that actually you can have a, a, a battle that looks more historically accurate, more historically real than if you're using 28 mil miniatures. If you've only got, well, you know, 20 figures in a unit representing a battalion of 800 men, you're looking at a you know figure to man ratio of like one to forty or whatever. That constrains the gamer and the, and the rule writer in, in some very interesting ways. Whereas if you've got six mil miniatures on the same size basis, but instead of you know twenty figures, you've got like eighty or a hundred and twenty figures or whatever it is representing that same unit, that actually allows you a great deal. What well, visually, I think it looks more realistic and it potentially allows you a lot more granularity in the way you run your games you know you can if you want mount them all on one base it's a unit and okay there's a lot of them but it's just a a block really and move it around but you can also break it down into small you know have uh, different numbers of bases of figures that represent companies platoons whatever there's a lot of interesting stuff you can do and I, I kind of feel like If six mil, two mil needs to go somewhere, it's actually to explore the possibilities that that kind of granularity could potentially permit. I think there's experimentation to be done. Uh, I think uh, it needs to be thought of carefully because, obviously, one of the problems with granularity is you can end up with like massive rule sets with lots of pluses and minuses and you know trying to cover every single possibility. But I think there's a lot of there's a lot of possibility there that hasn't necessarily been explored yet.
2: There's, there's a blog that i followed, and I'm just struggling to think of the name now. I think it's something like Palladium Gaming, something like that, oh. um, where it looks like a couple of young lads who um, game mainly in t- historical in 2MIL. Um, and they've done some fantastic work around uh, campaigns that they fought out in the American Civil War, um, and, and one or two other bits and pieces. But one game that they did was essentially a man-for-man scale regiment in 2-mil fighting cool. one other man-for-man regiment in 2-mil yeah. in that sort of really zoomed-in in battlefield. Mm. And it, it looks incredible because I've never never heard of that being done before. I remember at, at Triples, Sheffield Triples, many years ago, um, somebody did Edge Hill with something like ten thousand Bacchus figures, yeah. uh, which was, uh, and then there was the big, really big Towton game. I don't know if you remember that one, Henry, where uh, yeah. Rory Dale and a few others um, uh, rethought Towton, and they, they got the they aim to get something like twenty to thirty thousand figures on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which gives you that real mass look that yeah, six yeah. mil is so good at and so affordable. Um, but th- this where it was just one regiment versus one regiment which had broken down into sort of company uh, and it, it was it 's about how how each regiment would wield to get the most muskets to bear, and then there 'd be the exchange of fire and then maybe across yeah, yeah. quarters that that was uh, you know if if people could perhaps translate that into uh the the six mil gaming or the two mil gaming as they have uh, mm-hmm. I think you 're right that too often people that write rules uh, that they say will be for 6 mil gaming. Well, they mm-hmm. might as well be for any scale of gaming, mm-hmm. to be honest, mm-hmm. and not really capitalising on, on the benefits. Mm-hmm. Now, each to their own. If if you want sure. to Western skirmish in 6 mil yeah. on a tea tray on your lap, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> <great>. <laughs> yeah. If your eyes are that good to, to manage that, fantastic. And, and likewise, if you've got the resources to fight the Battle of Blenheim, on a 20-foot-long table with thousands of 28-mil figures beautifully mm. painted, then great, good, good on you. But each to their own. And you mentioned about a broad church. Yeah. You know, we've, that, That's the bit for me that I think some people perhaps don't accept or don't realise that just because the way I do something uh, doesn't appeal to you, that doesn't matter. It's, mm. This is my hobby absolutely yeah 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 this this is my time that i'm investing you know if we play golf we all play relatively to the same set of rules and you know you you you, you go out and you play but with wargaming crikey who plays the same set of rules yeah. even yeah. if you own the same set of rules you don't necessarily play them in the same way yeah. that because people
1: know. tinker wargamers
2: are yeah. inveterate tinkerers yeah uh, and it's one of the beauties of the hobby isn't it mm. it's one of the wonderful things of this hobby that whether you're a painter, whether you're a model maker, whether you're a rules lawyer, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, whether you're a historian, it's all there, isn't it? That's why yeah, this hobby is so absolutely. wonderful, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And um, I mean, there's just so many aspects to this that I think uh, mean that you know people who... Um, Ignore the possibilities offered by small scale. Are really missing out. I mean, one thing, for example, you know, choose moving away from the Seven Years' War and all that kind of stuff, moving away from ancient World War Two. Uh, I own a, a, a bunch of what I still think are some of the most exquisite models on the planet. GHQ actually technically one two hundred eighty fifth scale. Yes. Uh, early war German armor, and I've got some early war French and stuff. That uh, the funny thing was because I this is a couple of years ago. I my mate guy and I were going to do oh we're going to do World War two, early World War Two and all oh, we decided G H Q beautiful miniatures yes expensive but definitely worth it. And I galloped away and and I was really chuffed with how well I painted all my early World War Two German stuff. And he gave up after two French tanks. Right, and it's like really, which is why we then switched to 20 mil, and I painted, uh, reproduced that German force in 20 mil, and he painted about two French tanks. Again. Oh come on, guy! Yeah, he's 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 having a kind of. Uh, a crisis with his gaming and certainly with his painting, so in the end I've said, well, do you know what, just give the whole lot to me, I'll paint the lot, so, but anyway the this goes back again to a board game, because uh, we, back at university, used to play a lot of advanced squad leader, which I, I look back with almost in horror right, but it had quite a lot going with it, and even back then I thought, oh, it would be quite nice to sort of do this with miniatures wouldn't it if only we could because now you've got hex on terrain you've got any number of people doing gaming mats that they'll oh you want it with hexes not a problem governor right so the possibilities now are extraordinary and one of the things i think that you know when I, i look at kind of the 20th century onwards really uh Six mil and thereabouts that that kind of genre is way ahead of the game. If you want something that actually looks like a real modern battlefield, uh, if you're playing anything more than kind of a skirmish, large, think of chain of command, it's fine because it's quite a confined area, we're looking at low level tactics and so on, so that that's cool. But if you're looking to do a a bigger size, modern battle you know from kind of uh, company size upwards one of the things that you know any real soldier will tell you is the battlefield sometimes looks almost completely empty so if you get that flames of war thing with you you have tanks advancing hub wheel hub to wheel hub you know almost bumping into each other and crowds of people unless you've got sort of Ostfront russians doing one of their charges or something it's just bonkers and you know two because now wow i've seen some of the two mil armor coming out is it odzyl and people like that's that right. extraordinary uh obviously you know pete at uh, backers is now doing his amazing you know new world war Two stuff that's yeah, just beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. um the ghq we've already mentioned which i'm going to mention again because they're sculpted by hand which is like uh uh, yeah well they were done for actual um kind of unit recognition you know for the us Uh, military and stuff that's why you know so they had to be as accurate as possible Uh, but ghq and of course dear old heroics and ross i mean some of the first micro armor i ever owned was some Bless their heart Slightly blobby, I think it has to be said. You know, Shermans and Tigers or whatever. But there's enough stuff out there to give you a choice. And, in, and now, the difference now for World War II stuff is the availability of terrain in that scale. You know, back in the early days... You know, I could cobble together, a you know, a a 172nd scale, HOO, or whatever it is, farmhouse, railway station, you know, all those cardboard models from the the German model railway people and stuff that were really helpful in the early days when we were using airfix figures and stuff. Mm. Then I learnt you know, through Charles Grant and others, oh, yes, you can make stuff using balsa wood and what have you. And. But still, making stuff for micro scale games was like, yeah, I suppose I could try and hack it out of a block of balsa wood or something like that didn't you just didn't get terrain of the same quality, trees trying to find trees and stuff of that scale, let alone roads well, look at the choice we 've got now it 's absolutely phenomenal, and one of the things that I find really beautiful is when i see say a world war ii game played in you know six mil or whatever the quality it's like an architect's model isn't it yes,
2: yes. Uh,
1: i can remember oh crikey it's probably a couple of years ago now that um uh, i can't remember the name of the show but over in kent uh, i shall remember it of course after we finished the conversation yes. my apologies to them but there was a A group of guys who'd recreated the assault on Pegasus Bridge D-Day, right? And it looked phenomenal. It looked like um, a model had been made from a reconnaissance photograph. And I think they'd 3D printed some of the the stuff, maybe the bridge itself and what have you. The, The water effects were amazing. All the little houses and gardens. Teeny, teeny, tiny stuff. It was exquisite. It was jewel-like. And I would say to anyone, you know, who favours any scale, if you've seen that, you could never, you know, with any good conscious, diss six mils a scale ever again. Because that was as perfect as anything I've ever seen anywhere in any
2: scale. Did you see Arnhem? On a similar vein Done last year Now I think it may have been taken to Crisis uh, oh, Last year So on the, in a similar vein The guy And he's he's on Twitter And I'll I'll, I'll post a link up in, in the show notes And uh, I'll message on Twitter with the link he, He'd taken one of those aerial reconnaissance photos Of the mm. bridge and, and the town centre And he'd recreated The town centre of Arnhem And the bridge and the ramp oh. And the and in a similar vein to that, I, this was one of those, wow, I have never seen that done before. Every garden, every outhouse, every yeah. road junction. Um, and I've seen the Pegasus Bridge game that you're talking about. And I think what the, more so than with the Arnhem thing, the Pegasus Bridge gives you that indication of space. Yes. That you don't often get, do you? Because famously, and I won't mention the company, but a certain Wargames company who do fantastic things in big scales released a box set uh, recreating Pegasus Bridge. Mm. Um, But the rules that were used, which are a set of rules that I've used uh, and and really enjoyed, but the set of rules that they used, you couldn't fire your rifle from one end of the bridge to the other. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) I can remember Neil Shuck talking about this on Meeples and Miniatures.
2: There there we go.
1: I know exactly what you're talking about.
2: So... um, that 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 in that concept of range and and just mm. the look on the table i've i've heard neil talk about that empty table thing mm. where i'm not really sure if you're crouching behind a hedge you know uh, and you're looking over a field mm-hmm. that's you see too much to be honest. You're gonna, you might shoot at it because there might be, you might hear shots coming in from uh, the other side. But you're not going to see too much, are you? Yeah. It's, so it's, that's a that's a brilliant point because
1: it it makes you think of what real tactical choices the commander on the spot would make. Because as you say, they might see some muzzle flashes, they might hear the shots coming in, so. Okay guys, lay down covering fire on that hedge over there. But you're not going to be doing aimed fire because you can't see anything specific to aim at. Similarly, think of all the images you've seen. You know, read anyone who who loves reading military history, World War II military history books about armored warfare and stuff. The care and attention that was given to making sure that your tank or other vehicle remained as concealed as possible for as long as possible vehicles being very carefully positioned so that they're hull down right vehicles being camouflaged with you know the foliage of the trees nearby you know and they if if they're moving from one position to another they got a different type of foliage they get rid of that lot and put on a new lot right they go because they're trying to save their own lives this is the difference. This isn't just a game, you know, oh, yeah, go on over there. Oh, black that thing there, whatever. They've got to conserve their ammunition. They've got to conserve their petrol oil and lubricant. They've got to make sure the thing keeps working. And they, you know, they want to kill the enemy lest they be killed themselves. So they go to extraordinary lengths in positioning their vehicles. Now, this is another thing. We mentioned it a bit earlier. The billiard table battlefield, right? Which is one area where it's actually a lot easier to achieve real kind of rolling countryside in the micro scales than it is in twenty-eight mil. Twenty-eight mil. Oh gosh, I can remember. I won't haul it off the shelf, sure. But there's books like the Airfix Guide to Napoleonic War Gaming and uh, books by Charles Grant. Where I think Nick Skinner might have mentioned this in the latest Lardy's Oddcast, where. I think you might have even mentioned me in connection with this, where basically he said, oh, yeah, Henry would probably show us where there were diagrams for this to do with dead ground, right? And they would have, yes, well, okay, you're using back then 25mm miniature, okay, uh, but we have to have a different height scale to ground scale because obviously if you're using, say, one millimetre represents one yard on the ground, yeah, that technically means that your little miniature there, he's hes 25 yards tall, right? <laughs> Which is like, oh, yeah, he's 75 feet high, so he's actually a giant. Whereas our... Con, as we were all using back then, contour hills. You know, you might use half inch thick chipboard or some, you know, styrofoam or something like that. Old ceiling tiles used to do a lot of service in my household, right? Oh, man. Oh,
2: man. Uh,
1: absolutely. So you've got this little step that's like a centimeter tall, but that's supposed to represent like a 50 foot contour or something like that. So there's always been, with the bigger scales of miniature, this mismatch between the ground scale, the height of the figures, and, of course, the number of men represented by each individual miniature. You know, I think Bruce Quarry was like 1 to 33. A lot of War Games rules were 1 to 20. Some of the WRG, 1685, 1845, was like 1. Now, that was interesting. It was 1 to 50 for infantry, but 1 to 40 for cavalry.
2: Yeah, we that one out.
1: <laughs> yeah, that blew really my mind. That was also the set I loved because it had surprised or Spanish minus one. (laughs) Which is like, mate, that's racist.
2: What What? if you're both? (laughs) What if you're both
1: uh, a Spanish or Australian? You know, there's, uh, there was all that. Now, come back to micro scale gaming, of course. You don't have to make the same compromises visually. Mm. You know, if you've got a big lump in the ground and you've got a 1-285th-scale tank, well, that's the height of the lump of the ground, right? You don't necessarily have to recreate the blooming Alps. You know, that would be a challenge for anyone, I'm sure. Even But, but it means that there's, you know, at worst, there's a, a much better correlation between the size of the miniatures you're using mm. and... The actual contours of the ground. Obviously, if you get down to two mil, you know, as we've seen uh, the games that you know Sid and Mark put on, you know, the Siege of Portsmouth or whatever, it's like, yeah, that looks like a bunch of men in that terrain, yeah. And this is the other thing, isn't it? It's like having, you know, in a normal large scale miniatures game, the miniatures dominate the landscape, don't they? Yes. Now. For some people, they want that. It's like, look at all my beautifully painted 28mm miniatures. Really what I'm here to do is to show off the miniatures. The terrain is kind of, it's nice, but it's sort of secondary. Whereas when you go to micro scale, no, 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 no. We are now looking at these forces in the landscape. We are back to that beautiful battle painting where you can see that, one of the difficulties for a general in undulating countryside, he might have a battle line stretching a mile or more and he can only see half of it or less because some of it is literally over the hill. Mm. So what does the the general has to then make various decisions about, do I have trusted subordinates who can carry messages to those places in a modern context, right? Is our radio network reliable? Because I can't see the guys, you know, yeah. uh even in really modern context, okay, the guys might have helmet cams on, but if the comms are down, the officer's still just as blind, yeah. so all these uh you know, it 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 becomes a step closer to another thing that Rich and <clears throat> Nick at two fat bardies love talking about, which is Kriegspiel. you're getting this much more realistic impression of what it actually means to command large forces in complex terrain you know back in ancient d- days they like to find a nice flat bit of almost desert right yeah get those pebbles out of the way because we've got chariots right and have at each other you know that's that's it is one of those things about a lot of ancient warfare said, so, blimey they had an awful lot of empty battlefields and there yes. was a reason for that, right?
2: reason, yeah.
1: It's yeah. almost like they agreed, yeah, we'll use this billiard table. Is that yes. all right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, a lot of medieval battles where we're on opposite sides of a of a valley and charge, we'll have <laughs> So they didn't have the same kind of command challenges. But as soon as you move, you know, into the gunpowder era, range is getting longer, Armies getting much bigger, certainly by the time you're reaching, you know, the 30 years war, or even the you know, some of the Italian wars and stuff, battles are much bigger, much bigger forces. And so, one of the joys of six, as it were, is you can recreate these battles, first of all, more economically, because you know, little leg, little lead is big, cheaper than big lead, but also. Far from people, you know, they should obsessed about, oh gosh, you know, well, I want to be able to see the buttonholes on those guys. Yeah, get over that. Because what you're moving towards is the ability to really properly reproduce the command challenges of big battles. Which then brings us back to, yeah, I think what we need now is more people writing more interesting rule sets for micro gaming that really kind of, uh, enhance the difference that the small scale stuff can make. Agreed. I'll, sh- I'll shut up now, Sean. I've been
2: babbling. <laughs> <friends>. <laughs> mate, mate, I often say, I often say when people say, I'm sorry for waffling, people come to listen to you and not me. <laughs> You're the person who's got something interesting to say. Well, I'm, I'm, just, just I'm just the continuity announcer, let's say that much. <laughs> that, 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 that thing about the. Um, the billiard table battlefield. I, I put a thread on Twitter today because I went for a walk through the beautiful Shropshire countryside just outside my front door. And as any wargamer worth his salt, if you go on a walk through some countryside, you think, well, imagine if this was my wargames table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what would I do with that copse over there or this uh, this enclosed field? And I was thinking. In English Civil War terms, it's just something I've been reading um, about Naseby, actually, over the last few days. And the the Solby enclosures, the hedges. And I'm looking at this this hedge line and I'm thinking, how in hell could a regiment of foot get from here to the other side of that hedge? In any sort of order, in any sort of timeliness, under fire... Yeah. Uh, never mind a regiment of horse yeah. And I'm not sure That we ever convey that do we We usually say well we'll take half off Or yeah. take four inches off your movement And you're yeah. over and you're in perfect order And you can carry on But and, you know I appreciate We're playing a game We're playing a game that we want to enjoy We don't want to mm. particularly get too bogged down In the minutiae of, uh, of Each individual man's struggle To get over a hedge Mm. But it's it's just something that I often wonder. Could be I'm no rules writer. Absolutely, mm. never written mm. a set of rules in my life. I've helped to play test a few, but that's about it. Mm. Um, but you're right. I think there's there's room, isn't there? There's space there for that extra creativity to make use of mm. this scale and really take the advan- get to the advantages of it. Because mm. I look back on things like. Uh, well, the Polymos set from, from Peter, for instance, designed yeah, yeah. for big battle games, aren't they? Yeah. And I know some people do uh, scale it down. There's a guy called John on the heretical wargaming site who plays a lot of right. Uh And he, he'll fight some small scale battles. But I think they really come into their own with those huge games like mm. pair plays and, mm. and, and other people play. Mm. But there's, there's more to it than just playing that huge huge expanse of the game yeah. like i said with the guys with the two mil one regiment on one regiment yeah, just maneuvering yeah. to best advantage it's only a little game a short game yeah, yeah. Play. but getting that creativity in there and I, i'm not the person to do that I I, mm. I I have no idea how to do that but mm. somebody like yourself henry who i know has written a very good set of uh horse and musket rules <laughs> well thank you very much indeed which I, i've hugely enjoyed in in the book um it, it's really getting to that space where we're doing something different rather than regurgitating mm. some of the old, yeah. old, you know, movement, uh, missiles, melee, morale, those four M mm. sort of approach. And there, there are creative rule writers out there most definitely, aren't there? In, mm. a, in mm. a, the oh, approach.
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, crikey that, um, we ought to mention someone like Sam Mustapha, yeah. uh, you know, with his blucher and what have you rule sets, uh, which are very innovative. Um, you know, thanks for mentioning my own rule set. I've, I've actually been astonished over the last few months the number of people who've come along because I've got a Facebook page for the Shot Seed stone Rules. And it's like at least a couple of hundred people now have liked the page, and some people have asked to join the group where I'm planning to have discussions about, you know, expanding the remit of the rules and what have you. This also ties in with, you know, looking at the clock, what we ought to mention is Salamanca, right? Yes, now.
2: let's. I because
1: I wrote... <laughs> Uh, it was in Miniature War Games with Battle Games, wasn't it? I forget the precise issue numbers, but I wrote a series called The uh, Salamanca Siren Call uh, which for people who haven't got a clue what I'm talking about let me explain very briefly Uh, going back to the War Games Holiday Centre going back in fact to the days when Peter Gilder was still alive, so we're talking probably it probably was about 1986, 7, something like that, when I the one and only time I met Peter Gilder at the, because uh, it was a February that year. It was freezing cold. The, the War Games Holiday Centre used to be located in the middle of the Yorkshire Moors inland from Scarborough. My God, it was bitter. There were people wearing, you know, fingerless mittens and stuff. Uh, and paraffin, remember those paraffin stoves <laughs> to keep this giant scout hut? <clears throat> but anyway, it was we were playing Salamanca obviously with all the glorious Hinchcliffe miniatures 25 mil and it was one of those situations where I was told that I was Marmont uh, the French commander uh, because none of the other people on our side wanted to volunteer and I was like yeah go on I'll give it a go and I um I didn't know much about the battle of Salamanca but I did recognize the vulnerability of the potential vulnerability of the British position with that big hinge because it's all like they're marching around this kind of L-shaped thing and the French made the mistake of not deviating from that historically whereas if they'd actually reinforced that hinge they would have been able to resist the British anyway, cut long story short I changed history, as it were, as Marmont, to my own astonishment, actually, and had this glorious moment because I'd husbanded all the French dragoons and launched this massive cavalry charge through the hinge, and it just smashed through square after square of British because I had the cavalry with horse artillery in attendance. Did it all properly, right? Probably one of the most glorious wargaming moments I've ever had in my life. Right, It was fantastic. Anyway, so that battle salamanca after that happened well naturally it's like oh this is that was a really fun game it was a brilliant game it was all played in the right spirit peter gilder was lovely the miniatures were fantastic socially it was brilliant all the right you know stars were aligned and because i hadn't known much about salamanca every napoleon it was waterloo you know if you're british waterloo is the important one and i started doing more reading and realized Hang on a minute. Do you know what? Actually, Salamanca in many ways was a much more impressive victory than Waterloo. It was a much more clear cut victory. And uh, Wellington, well, Wellesley as he then was, he became Wellington because of Salamanca, did an amazing piece of generalship. His subordinates worked brilliantly and it was a fantastically executed plan. So I got kind of obsessed with Salamanca and it stayed with me. And then it got to uh, Miniature War Games with Battle Games when I was at the editor there. Um, I can't reveal much, but let's say there were certain uh, constraints imposed upon me about how, well, basically what my budget was to commission work. And it came down to well, if I'd run out of budget, I had to fill the pages myself, okay. right? That was just an absolute imperative, and it's was... oh, there's a lot of stories behind this shortly, <laughs> for another
2: time We'll save that for another part. Let's
1: just say that being the editor of a magazine isn't the the rosy-coloured patch that some people f- think it is it really... Not the
2: jet-set life in Monaco with the Farage. No, mate, you know, it's oh, not
1: okay. Vogue or
2: Cosmopolitan, mate, it's miniature war games with battle
1: <laughs> games, and Anyway, so I thought, well, okay, if I've got this problem, what can I do? What do I feel inspired about that I could maintain a series of over several issues to help kind of plug this budgetary gap? You know, if I'm not going to get paid for it, uh, well, I might as well enjoy it. And I thought, oh, Salamanca and... Oh, yeah, how about approaching it differently? How could I make Salamanca a practical battle to play at home without making any real compromises? So it's like, obviously, well, duh, go six mil. And I did invest a certain amount of cash with Mr. Berry. Uh, I even remember him saying something like, are you sure about this, Henry? Uh,
2: <laughs>
1: it was that much, was it? Oh, well, it was enough for him to go, oh,
2: all right. Uh, But
1: anyway, bless his heart, I think he gave me a discount, bless his heart. But anyway, um, so I bought a load of uh, British for 1812, French of that period, Spanish, Portuguese and so on, basically to cover all every unit that was actually present at the battle. And I just started writing about it. It's like, okay, how can you take a battle like Salamanca and compress it? into, uh, I think I went for six foot by 10 foot or something like that, which is the largest size I can fit up here in the loft. of a size battlefield. So I went through the whole process of, well, nowadays we've got Google Earth. So why don't we actually go and take a look at what the battlefield of Salamanca actually looks like? Because it's still relatively unspoiled, you know, unlike a a lot of battlefields it was just a fascinating process and then going into the business of okay so which units were present and precisely how many men did they have present on the day and where were they and so on so i went through this whole process of kind of scaling it to be playable as a six mil game up here in the loft and whilst i was doing that i thought well for my book you know i'd already written this rule set shot steel and stone that works fine for 28mm miniatures, so how can I adapt that downscale to 6mm? And I realised, actually, to my enormous surprise, I don't think I need to make an awful lot of changes. So I even published, you know, this kind of downscale version of Shot, Steel and Stone as I think was the final piece. Uh, It wasn't intended to be the final piece. The final piece, of course, was supposed to be, and ta-da, here we are, folks, I've done it! And here's all the pictures to prove it. And well, fate intervened and uh, change of magazine ownership and stuff. So I've still got quite a lot of unpainted Bacchus Napoleonics. Probably running into a couple of thousand or more (laughs) mixes, isn't it? Whatever. Uh, But I've got all the preps there, all the bases are cut to size. I ordered a load from war bases, I think back then. And, uh, it's, uh, what I've decided I'm going to do with the Salamanca thing is I'm going to involve my patrons, because one of my patrons actually suggested this a little while ago. I said, oh, you know, we remember you wrote about Salamanca, Henry. W- what's happening with it? It's like, Oh, God, why can't I just keep my mouth shut? If only these people knew it was just supposed to be a load of filler articles, right? <laughs> But this is what happens. You put something out in the world and people go, oh, that looks interesting.
2: Right? back to the serendipity thing.
1: Absolutely. So be careful what you open your mouth about, folks. It'll come back to bite you. So I have decided I'm going to get some of my patrons that they've volunteered, some of them. So whether it will be I'll farm out some stuff for them to paint or, which might be a sensible thing, or uh, basically get them involved in actually staging the game. But it's going to be a bigger thing. I thought it was just going to be a little thing up here in my attic. But I think, you know, maybe it's something that I'll stage at the Joy of Six.
2: Well, that would be amazing.
1: You know, something like that would be nice. Uh, Whether it's the first outing. I think what I might do is a a first outing more privately to check that everything works. Right. Um, But it should be interesting because I realized you know, the, the terrain is rolling. It's, there's a couple of, you know, the, 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 the uh, lesser and greater Arapiles as they're called, the two main hills at the kind of angle of the action. Uh, and there's a few kind of ridges and what have you, but as with a lot of Spain, it's pretty open countryside. You know, you've not got random copses. You haven't got random hedges. <laughs> Cropping up. That kind of Don't thing. need to
2: worry about that.
1: Though. Exactly. Um, <laughs> And I just think it could be it could be spectacular actually. It's one of the examples where I think, yeah, this could look really good in six mil and Again, I want to go back and have another look at the way that my shots in the stone rules work for that scale of action because I originally wrote those rules for kind of, you know, the typical divisional level action that we mostly play, you know. Whereas when you're commanding entire armies on both sides, I think I need to add in a bit more command and control stuff and obviously make some, you know, tweaks. So it's very specific to that day in 1812, you know, when the battle actually happened, you know, because that's one of the other things that's, you know, again, people talking about historical accuracy. We're often playing with incredibly generic rule sets. Which have their place, and I hands up, you know, my shot Stephen Stone were deliberately written as a generic horse and musket rule set when I first did them, so I had a rule set in the book, you know, when it came out back in crikey, twenty thirteen. Um, so it was deliberately kind of, you know, here's a, a a a basic thing onto which you can then bolt other components if you want to make it more specific, you know. So, um, that is you know, it's in the shot locker. It's kind of, it's not been forgotten about. I I've am, I'm, It's not the top of my list of priorities, but for six mil fans, here I am. I'm making a promise that I will do this and I will report on it and the progress. And if people want to get involved in specific ways, you know, that would be great, you know, because I think like Pear's amazing, Pear Broden. You know, he he comes up, ooh idea for project, and he hides himself away in his sh- shed or garage or wherever it is, for a while, and then he emerges and he's done all this stuff, right? It's amazing, Pear, all yes. miraculous. Whereas I've learned, because time's precious to me these days. I'm a busy guy, and you know, got health issues at the moment and stuff. So it's like, I'm going to delegate some stuff you know, I'm going to focus on the stuff that I can, that kind of means the most to me, that that it's me doing it, right? And because I'm the best person to do it. But then there's other stuff. It's like, yeah, if you want to help, absolutely, you know, whatever. And I think, mentioning Pear again, that, that project he's doing at the moment just shows there are people out there, the community, the wargaming community is amazing. People just put their hands up and say, yeah, I'll do a bit.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, the response that Pairs had, I've I've painted my own unit for that. And the the response he's had has been absolutely incredible. Um, I think he's already had 25% of the figures back painted. um, And that's within, you know, a couple of weeks. So, Something similar, maybe, along those lines, whether it's patrons or other volunteers. And I'd certainly put my hand up to uh, volunteer to paint something for you, Henry, because... Oh, for t- 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 um, Well, <laughs> you haven't seen my painting. <laughs> 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 this one-inch brush I've got. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think because of... And I don't want to make you blush here, but the fondness for yourself within this community uh, that's shown across... The social medias and when you go to shows i know you struggle to get around a show don't you uh because <laughs> it's,
1: sometimes it's absolutely incredible it literally is i've lost my voice by lunchtime because there's so many people just oh you henry nice to see you and all it's you know it it really does bowl me over i'm still as i'm still astonished
2: by it i but, truly but, am but you are one of those people and again I won't make you blush but you are one of those people who has contributed to the hobby and mm-hmm. it's it's no this is no exaggeration that I grew up on the the featherstone books and the grant books and mm-hmm. you know you're you're in that sort of next generation along from there where you know, when was the last time a Wargames book was released of the standard that you put out there?
1: Well, there you are. It's again, serendipity. And and the same reason I launched Battle Games was the reason I wrote my book, which is yeah. like, who was the last person who wrote a book? Don Featherstone and his complete Wargaming or something, that yeah. the, the very full-colour book. And how many years ago was that? And I just yeah. thought, I can't believe... No one's done this. And then, of course, even huger piece of serendipity, I was approached by Pen and Sword, who said, we'd like you to write a book for us. And I said, oh, well, I know just the kind of book I ought to write. And they said, oh, yeah, fine. Do whatever you want. Now, that's a two-edged sword. I mean, first of all, like any author will tell you that's not how things are supposed to work. It's supposed to be like, yeah, you tout your manuscript around like fifty different publishers, getting rejection slips, and said, eventually, if you're lucky, a publisher says, "Oh, all right." So for them to actually come to me and say, "We want you to write a book for us," that was like, "Wow, okay." Mm-hmm. And secondly, the fact that they said to me, "Basically, do what you want," right? Because again, most publishers say, "Oh, we, we want you to write a book about this particular thing," and I was just given literally free reign. Two-edged sword, as I said, because it's like, wow, but also, oh, my God. And that's also why it took me, like, four years to write. <laughs> it was pretty they comprehensive. The same, and then they did the same thing again with the book I'm struggling to finish at the moment, which has taken even longer. Oh, what do you want to do Us another book, Henry? Oh, yeah, I should probably do one about campaigns because no one's done that for a long time. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, whatever. And then that's like, I tell you, folks, when the book finally comes out, I hope you really get the impression of what a rabbit warren this has turned out to be. Because it's also, stuff keeps changing. Since the lockdown, look at what's happened. How many people now who may never have fought a campaign before have got involved? with stuff over Zoom or Discord or, you know, insert software of choice here. And suddenly they're, like, here's a mention again for the Lardis, they've been running these incredible campaigns of short or long duration, you know, of different periods of history. It's phenomenal. And suddenly people are discovering campaigning who might never have considered it before. Agreed. So, of course, it's like, yeah, I better mention that in the book, hadn't I? Right? So I thought
2: the book. <laughs> another was, chapter.
1: <laughs> I thought, exactly. I thought the book was finished kind of uh, beginning of this year, or was it end of last year? I can't remember. Sent it out to my beta readers, some of my trusted readers, and got their feedback. And yeah, these people are really good. And a lot of us, oh yeah, we love it, Henry. But what about X? What about Y? I thought I'd written about that. <laughs> seriously and then you go back and read it, it's like i could have sworn i'd written and then of course now i've just been in correspondence with um with nick skinner in fact about this whole thing about discord campaigns stuff because he had written a bit for me for the book a few months ago before the before the cancer kind of took over and the lockdown and everything and They've been running so many of these campaigns. I said, "Mm, do you want to update the bit that you sent me, Nick? And he said, oh, yeah, I suppose I ought to. Which is just, but that's what it's like. So at some point, I'm just going to say, enough!
2: The end! (laughs) I'm, I'm going to offer one piece of advice to you, Henry. I'm no author. I'm no wordsmith. But I do like to think that part of the success of the original book is down to a photograph on... It's about three-quarters of the way through the book, and it's me demonstrating a game at Partisan. I Yay. like to think that that photograph <laughs> is partially responsible. I'll tell you what, I've dined out on that a little bit amongst my <laughs> Wargaming mates, just leaving it casually open at the bay. Oh, Oh, how, how embarrassing. Sorry.
0: Oh, <laughs> appears to know.
2: be me in Henry's book.
0: There
1: you go. Well, There's an awful lot of people, as you know, in that book who randomly yes. happen to be at shows and have gone, Hang on a minute, that's me. <laughs> well, Didn't it's, it's, track, I've had no
2: royalties. <laughs> I well, book. it's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful book and it's one, it's one of those books that you can dip into again and again and again and it just shows the work that you put in. I followed your your progress on, on writing that book as you appeared on various podcasts and uh, I know it was a mammoth task, and 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 God bless you. But for it was a standing
1: joke when Neil Shuck and I used to do our view from the veranda. It was a standing joke, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, uh, that and the the complete guide to point systems by R. P. Reesley. <laughs>
2: Yes yeah I love that one and you gave us a bit of a shock when uh, you intimated you were about to talk about points and then got diverted away to some <laughs> random subject <laughs> that was very yes, well Yes
1: that was a running joke this is how I um, I haven't seen nearly in- Ages, bless his heart, and I hope he's all right because I know that that was a brave decision they made, him and Mike, to say, "Do you know what? I think we've done enough with the with the Meeples show." Um, and but then you know it will remain forever untainted in people's yes. memories. You know, I think that it was they did the right thing, not saying you know dragging it on for ages when they didn't really want to continue doing it. So that was really yep. good of them. Yep. And at the same time, you know, I know the effort that goes into this now I'm podcasting myself and I've done what 57 or something battle chats plus a whole bunch of specials and stuff. So it's like, it's a lot of hard work. People don't realize they think, Oh, you just sit down and chat with someone. It's like, mate, you should see some of the editing I've had to do on some of the shows.
2: Exactly, um, and uh, this is this will be episode eleven, so I'm but a baby in in the. Uh, double in the, digits, mate. Double digits, yeah. That's quite an achievement. I thought to reach double well, digits,
1: you know. And what's really lovely is that as a, as a as a hobby, we have spawned. I mean, we're really lucky because we've still got uh like several war games magazines we've still got war games illustrated we've still got war games soldier and strategy we've still got miniature war games you know and there's also tabletop games as well yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's a lot for what is really a niche hobby mm-hmm. and the number of you know blogs out there now that people are managing to sustain and podcasts mate you know uh i think you know th- i i someone said to me because um there was a guy doing an article for a magazine a few months ago said, Oh, could you let me have a list of, you know, the wargaming podcasts? I thought, Oh, that's a good question, actually. And I did the research, and there's like, oh, I don't know, 100 different podcasts or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, many of them in, spheres that i don't really dabble in lots of fantasy rpg yes. and stuff but lots that are dedicated to specific things like you know games workshop stuff uh flames of war stuff six mil stuff you know this it's and the fact is that the hobby's healthy enough to sustain a podcast just about micro scale gaming yeah. mate you've done a great thing and hey why not you know and i think it's like blogging i'll say to because some people have said to me oh i could do a podcast well yeah you could but the hard thing is not just doing a podcast but sustaining it into the future to the point because i know people started their own blogs on mass you know a few years ago and then loads disappeared because basically they got bored they realized I had this thing I really wanted to say to the world and then oh oh I've run out of stuff to say.
2: I've said it now, but there's nothing else to say. It's, yeah. <laughs> and, that and, new content. You know,
1: being a being a podcaster, you know, exactly as you said earlier in the show, you have to have quite broad tastes and interests to be able to put feelers out there. Oh, you know, that's interesting. Keep your eye on different things. Mm. Oh, that's an interesting part. Oh, I want to get them on the show and stuff. I mean, the way it's developed in my show recently, where I've started to get actual academics onto the show, you know, get professor Gary Sheffield, professor Tony Pollard, and these people, which for me is like, wow, they want to come on my show, which is like amazing. But it's also unlocked a new dimension for me because I'm passionate about military history, you know, I've got a degree in history. And so actually being able to delve into some of the, if you like, the deeper aspects of what we do as a hobby, uh, you know, we're representing history on the tabletop. So, hey, why not have some people who actually know something about that history for real you know and I think that a lot of people have responded well to that and they thought oh crikey yeah. like I had a hugely in-depth conversation with Gary Sheffield about World War One and I haven't talked to anyone in depth about World War One since I was at university Right. so for me that's like wow that was has rekindled an interest that I've kind of forgotten I had you know
2: well it's what it's one of my my passions the First World War and that's um that podcast with Gary was uh, really good. I, I, I'm, I follow him on Twitter and, yeah. uh, you know, I've read a couple of his books. Well, one thing I'll, I'll just come back to because I'm going to let you go very shortly, Henry. All right, that's fine. I, I, I'm going to undo those handcuffs that I've put on you to <laughs> keep you to that chair and talking. Um, about the niche hobby, it's a really interesting one because we use that all the time, don't We don't with the phrase of a niche hobby. But when you consider Games Workshop now are bigger than Marks and Spencers yeah. and bigger than the company that own British Gas, if it's Centrex, is it, or something like that. Two billion pounds. Yeah. Two billion pounds. It's just incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, the Perrys were interviewed in The Economist. Yes, um, absolutely. This week or last week, I think. Mean. So I think it is slowly crawling out of the shadows, isn't it, and becoming more of an acceptable... Uh, pastime and uh, you know i don't know if lockdowns had something to do with that
1: well i I think sean actually it has because i mean this is another big subject that we can yak on for hours mental health yeah one of the things that i think people have acknowledged since the lockdown started is the incredible mental health benefits that our hobby can have yeah uh First of all, it's a pursuit that you can do at home. You don't need to go out and risk your life wearing a mask or whatever. You can do it at home. Everything you want nowadays is available via the internet. You know, or you can whatever you want, literally from anywhere in the world. Even if postage is delayed a bit at the moment, it'll get here. You know, and, and still this stuff I've been able to order is like blimey, is here like next day almost extraordinary.
2: Yeah. yeah
1: exactly. um, so the, there's that advantage. Secondly. It's a hobby that involves so many aspects. In fact, you know, you could say that my wargaming compendium is, if you like, an homage to the mental health benefits of being a wargamer, because you've got the research, you've got the choices you can make and think about for ages, about, oh, should I do this in 6 mil, 10 mil, 2 mil, 15 mil, 20 mil, 172, 28 mil, blah, 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 blah. And all the decisions that go with that. So what am I trying to represent? Oh yes, these are the choices. As I say, it's the toolbox thing. Mm-hmm. Then you've got, okay, the the purchasing decisions, you're gonna go plastic, you're gonna go metal and all these kind of things. Uh, Are you then going to paint them yourself or send them to someone else to be painted? And if you are going to paint them yourself, what techniques are you going to use to paint them? What brushes are you going to need? What paints are you going to need? And (laughs) da-da-da-da. Then there's the painting itself, which is a hugely therapeutic pursuit. doesn't matter whether you're a great painter or a rubbish painter. The fact is... Painting is one of those activities that enables you to enter what's called technically flow state. There's been some brilliant books written about this, where it's basically you are freed from all other distractions and your concentration is focused entirely on literally what's at the end of your fingertips. Whilst you're doing the painting, you can sit quietly and let your mind wander, or as a lot of people do nowadays, listen to audio books on whatever subject you like. Funnily, I'm really into languages, so I've been listening to a lot of books about linguistics and etymology and that kind of stuff. So the painting itself becomes almost an automatic process. And in terms of, you know, psychology, this is fantastic because you're... Totally distracted from all your other worldly kind of concerns. You're not worrying about your mortgage. You're not worrying about, you know, oh God, what am I going to do about repairing the roof and all those kind of stuff. You're focused entirely on this repetitive, and this is an important thing repetitive activity. That isn't just boringly repetitive, you know. You're not stitching sticking widgets on the end of a bolt or whatever in a factory, you're doing a repetitive process that then produces these beautifully, you know, they're uh, first of all, they're beautifully crafted miniatures to start with, and your efforts enhance those miniatures. And they come, you come away, uh, you've created something beautiful, it's literally wow, I did that. My godson is in the process of discovering this right now. We've started doing, you know, uh, painting sessions over FaceTime. He was all averse to it for ages. Oh, God, I'm crap. I'm not going to be able to do this. And the last couple of sessions, it's transformed him. And he's having a difficult time at the moment because his parents are splitting up and stuff. So it's like he, I've been able to give him something, right, which is... I feel, you know, it's wonderful. I feel quite choked up about, wow, I've been able to do that for him. And he's choked up because he's like, wow, why did I never listen to Henry before? He kept telling me about how wonderful this thing was. So you do the painting and you base them and varnish them. And then you get to play with them. Right. Yeah. So you then have... The gaming thing, which itself is massively beneficial mental health wise, you can add to that the social thing, even in lockdown. Look at what people have been doing over, over you know Skype and over Zoom and playing games with each other online, even if they're not physically present. That is massive. You know, win or lose. It's a social thing. And then, of course. You can go get even more interested. Oh, now I should learn something more about tactics. Oh, that bloke Henry Hyde's written a series in Wargame <laughs> Soldiers and Strategy about ta- Perhaps I should go back and read some of those. You know, all that all these interests that blossom from what looks like to outsiders potentially oh, it's a bit nerdy, oh playing with toy soldiers. Now we can, you know, we're shouting proudly about this. There Articles about our hobby in the national press, and they're not going, Oh, look at these weirdos. They're going, Oh, there's something in this, you know. So, you know, all those years we've been thinking, Oh, what can we do about the greying of the hobby? How do we get more people into the hobby? In some ways, bizarre though it is, the COVID thing and the lockdown thing has potentially been a real boon for us because we can show people.
2: This is seriously good for you. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, Henry. Absolutely. That absolutely nails it. And as somebody who's had his own challenges, um, mm. the, the the benefits that this hobby has brought to me, whether that's reaching out to people who I'd never normally speak to, whether it's spending a couple of hours in my office with a paintbrush in my hand and You you talk about that. It's almost a a Zen state, I think, you get into it. Yeah, that's it. At the end of it, you you don't remember the process almost, but you've got that end product, haven't you? So, yeah, incredible. And I've heard you talk about this before on on your own podcast about some of these uh, books on psychology and Mm. and thinking. And So, yes. um, Right, Henry, that was fantastic. There's one more thing I need from you before you go. Go on, my friend. I I, I maybe should have primed you with this, but... um, (laughs) There is, a, there is a virtual God's Own Scale library That I insist each guest puts a book into uh, For everybody else to enjoy So it's a recommendation on a book Whether it's a military history book A wargaming book, whatever what right. You choose, it's entirely in your remit And I'm going to waffle a little bit more Just to give you that time to think Oh wow. my god
0: <laughs> no, As he
2: turns to look at his shelf
1: <laughs> no, that, Well I'll tell you I'm standing up folks I'm grabbing it off the shelf. Here we go. It's Solo Wargaming by Donald Featherstone. First published in... Uh, when was it? Let's have a look. First published in... 1973. Uh, not only am I choosing this because, of course, under the current circumstances, Solo Wargaming is quite a good tool to have in your armoury, Right? But also because, as I think I mentioned earlier, if you think back to what I was talking about, that game I played in my shed that ended up being the basis of the article I wrote for Duncan McFarlane, 1986. There is so many things, ideas in this book that you think, oh, that sounds familiar. Right. Uh, to do with card-driven stuff, to do with adding personalities, to do with uh, concealment in solo war gaming, which is still a challenge to everyone, isn't it? Um, you know, basically, I would say pretty much everything in this book is weather in war games, battles by mail. Of course, now we'd use email stuff. Everything in this book is still relevant. The only thing that I would say yeah that's sweet looking at that. is st- Its like uh, looks uh, the books and magazines and model soldiers, sources of supply where of course, sadly, many of these companies would have disappeared decades ago, but it is still. Packed full of stuff now. I, if you can get hold of an original like this in good condition on eBay or ABE books, probably cost you a few quid. But it's been republished by John Curry of the History of Wargaming Project. I oh, was it a tenner, something like that. Oh, one of the best tenners you could invest. Uh, it's just I'm a great believer in what goes around, comes around in our hobby. And there are so many things I look at now where people say, Oh, we've invented this amazing new rule system. And what I was like, yeah, that sounds familiar from like 1960 something. And, you know, I I think it's just, so I'm not recommending the book just because, Hey, you know, I fall at the feet of Donald Featherstone. It's simply that it is, there's just, it's packed full of ideas. Uh, Don Featherstone, was a great one for just, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea. He wasn't prescriptive. You know, much as I love Charles Grant and the War Game, which I could have plucked off the shelf and stuff, uh, Charles was more prescriptive. He was avuncular, but it was very much kind of, this is the way to do it, right? And this is is how I wrote these rules. This is why I wrote them this way. This is the way to do it. Don Featherstone was much more Catholic, there's that word again, grabs ideas from all over the place, admits that not all of them are his own, bungs them in a book, out it goes. And it's like, I can remember the first time I got this off the, the shelves of, it would have been Southend Library back in the day when I was a kid. Uh, absolutely blew me away. And still, I go back and uh, flick through the pages and think, wow, that's amazing. You know, solo, solo gaming and... Um, even wargaming in bed if you do come down with the disease wow
2: <laughs> that's it that'd be an interesting chapter to read. <laughs> so <laughs> that's still my... solo at that point
1: absolutely but anyway so that's my recommendation for your virtual shelf mate
2: brilliant henry well that shall take pride of place amongst uh, all, all the other books that are, are gathering dust on there henry um it's very difficult to put into words how pleased I am that we've finally spoken so, um that uh you the how the conversation's gone it's you blown me away mate so I, I thank you so much for taking the time out of, of your day and you're going through some incredible challenges at the moment and yet you're still smiling and well, that, hey. that's, that's <laughs> an absolutely incredible you've got yes there's a certain extent to say you've got to but really, um, I'm, I'm very touched that you've uh, you've allowed uh, me to spend this time with you. And well, thank
1: uh, you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sean. And like you, it's like, thank God we got around to it. That yeah. means that I can get you on my show next.
2: Well, yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll speak to my, I'll get my people to speak to your people. <laughs> <laughs> um So uh, I'm going to say that this is uh, the end of episode one of Perspectives from the Patio. (laughs) (laughs) And if there's an episode one, there has to be an episode two, Henry. Uh, And uh, I'll I'll tie you to that as and when uh, we get round to it. But mates, thanks so much for your time. And uh, I wish you all the health and all the the best wishes, as I'm sure everybody who listens to this does. But thank thank you, Henry.
1: You're extremely welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: On his lips and his left hand And fists upon his shoulder Bright and gay As the train moved out he said, Remember me to all the birds Then he wagged his paw And went away to walk Shouting out these pathetic words Goodbye, goodbye the oh, so dear, baby dear From your eye Though it's hard to part I know, I know I'll be the go. Don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. We'll walk all through the ocean, till the blue to blue goodbye. At the coppers down at Cub, some convalescents dressed in blue. Had to hear Lady Lee, who had turned eighty-three, sing all the old, old songs she knew. Then she made a speech and said, I look upon you boys with pride, and for what you've done, I'm going to kiss each one. Then they all grabbed their sticks and cried, Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, and the dear baby dear from your eyes, though it's hard too fast, I know, I know, I'll be. For the death to go Don't cry Don't sigh There's a silver lining In the sky But my old thing Cheerio Cheet Cheet Na Boo Toodaloo Goodbye Little private Patrick Storm He was the prisoner Of war in the hun with the gun called his pink dog for fun then paddy punched him on the door right across the barbed wire fence the german dropped them dear oh dear all the wire gave away and paddy yell hooray as he ran for the dutch frontier goodnight goodnight white oh, from your eye though it's hard to pass i know i know i see. be People that to go, don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver bit in the sky. But for all things, serious! you'll blue, Goodbye.
2: Cheers, mate. Mate, thanks so much for that. That was was truly amazing. What a a great chat that was. And I've kept you up past your bedtime, I'm afraid. No, no, it's not my bedtime, mate. It's dinner time. (laughs) Oh, dinner time. I better go. That's what the rumbling was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That'll be little tanks coming for you anyway.
2: That's the one. (laughs) Mate, thanks so much. Um, And uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, as lockdown gets lifted, then I suppose there's a chance the October... Party that um, may running uh, we haven't heard much from Lawrence on that or
1: uh, i mean they're 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 leaving it as long as they possibly can before having to make a decision' Cause I think it would have been late September or was it earlier I've lost track, I'm yeah. supposed to be there if it happens I'm supposed to be there yeah. and if it doesn't happen I'll do another virtual thing like I did that three hour monologue
2: I, I, absolutely, I absolutely love that Henry, Those came back know? through those old photos, I was there at this show when that game was on Um and I, I don't know if it was through the magazine or through the blog where you were talking about the build up to it and then yeah, yeah. the actual day itself it's just Bloody incredible that was Um, You talk about um, You talk about those battle scenes Well with all those individually based figures
1: (laughs) Oh my (laughs) god yeah 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 particularly the Molvitz one I mean Sitangbad was kind of Manageable but Molvitz was like But the thing there was like Oh my god these are the Actual figures that are in that book Oh my god (laughs) And the way that you know, they weren't treated with any reverence. Charles was just, you know, scoop them up, plop no, them down. No, no.
2: You didn't have white gloves on.
1: It was just like, but that's the way they've always treated them. And yes. this is the thing, you see. Yes. Like to, to to me, they are like, you know, holy relics. Yes. <laughs> They're, it's just the toys they use. Yeah, so it's their
2: uh, toy soldiers. Just and then he sold toys.
1: them all off and he's replaced them all with, you know, mindens and oh, what, oh, right,
2: which is okay. like, really, but yes, hey, yeah, yeah. he's the brigadier, they're his toys, he can do it. <laughs> who's to argue? <laughs> right, Henry, I'll, I oh, shall mate. let you go and get your, lunch, uh, your dinner, and uh, I will catch up with you very soon. Bless you, mate. Uh, w- when do you think this show will go out? Uh, I'm thinking probably next weekend now, Sunday, Monday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that. Okay, mate. Let me think, uh, Sunday, yes. Sunday. All
1: right, mate. well, I'll, I'll, you'll announce it on Twitter or whatever anyway. Won't you?
2: I'll, I'll drop you a p.m., So let me know what's going on. Fantastic. Cheers, Henry. Take
1: care, mate. Thank you. Good night. Good night.
2: Cheers. Thank you.